everyone, welcome to Talking Force. Today we have an incredible guest and in Guy Hornsby. He's over at West Virginia. So glad you could join us today. We are going to talk a wide range of things from the state of the game, uh, data in the modern times. And then I think uh, we're going to go a little bit old school as well and talk about um, some of the, the major, major data uh, insights that we've had in the past that we, we need to not forget. So Guy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So for anyone who doesn't know your story, or we always have our bit by the iron bug story, walk us through, how'd you get to where you're at today? Cause I'm sure it was a very linear process to get you exactly oh, yeah. where you're at there in West Virginia. And we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been at Western university since, uh, 2016. Um, it's by far the, the uh, longest stay I've had uh, since I've uh, been in the professional world. Um, I really got started in the field uh, in 2005 at East Tennessee State University. Um, my, my first year at ETSU was Dr. Stone and Meg Stone's first year at ETSU. And so I really got to experience uh, firsthand to, to see how that program grew and, and developed and really started at the, the bare bones of um, here's a sports science lab and we have a couple teams that are doing some testing to, you know, a, a, a much bigger endeavor uh, uh, today. And, and I, really a couple years in, um, part of that really neat experience was the uh, things were moving really fast and we were not um, integrating with, with uh, different different sports, different teams. Um, and along the way, uh, Meg was my throws coach as an undergraduate. Doc Stone was my strength coach. Uh, throughout the five years of grad school, Dr. Stone was my weightlifting coach. And, and so, um, yeah, just I, I couldn't ask for, for a, a better learning experience. And it's really, I think, with some of the things I, I do here, uh, which is I, I coach a weightlifting club. I coach the, the WD weightlifting club. Uh, I oversee a uh, contract with Montague County School Board where we provide a, through, through a GA, we provide a head strength coach uh, to each of the three high schools in the county. Um, I am a volunteer coach for WVU track and field. And then I uh, sort of volunteer on a, a sports science when needed basis with with WVU athletics and so um, all, all the while trying to sort of steer and direct our we've we've recently changed the name of our our program it used to be athletic coaching education now it is coaching and performance science and so uh, you know some of the, the the relevant discussions not just that we're having today but you know through your your podcast where things have are changing quite rapidly. We, we need to uh, be aware of that when we are looking to prepare students in the, the field of coaching and sports science. Well, certainly a lot has happened since you started. I mean, you mentioned Coach Stone. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it, Coach Stone, because the fact that um, he has not only done it himself, he has continued to keep the blade sharp in coaching, I think has made a lot of his research relevant. And I think when we talk about sports science or Again, the new hotness now is data scientist, data, anything data engineer or something is the new hotness. But um, is it relevant? Is it pertinent? And again, let's go back to our origins of what strength and conditioning was. Boyd Epley is hired to come into Nebraska and try to beat Oklahoma to take the biological state of the team, get Coach Devaney permission to make them faster. So there was clear intent. But now 
we have access to so many things. And I would even go as far to say it was probably growth in the last 10 years, but really the last five, there has been an explosion of technology, of data, of software that has really flooded the market. But my question to you is, and again, you, you, you wear both hats and worn many before, Walk me through the data, and I, my biggest pet peeve right now is tell me how the data you're collecting isn't going to tell me one of these three things. One, my athlete is weak. We can agree. Strength isn't easy. That's not an overnight thing. Um, involves programming and periodization, and some people can and can't do that. Athletes can be committed or not. Two, um, fear-mongering a sport coach saying, well, keep your athletes from getting injured, which isn't a thing. Go look at the NCAA stats. The injuries have changed, but injuries are part of the game. If you don't want to get injured, stay on the couch and get diabetes. Don't move. Um, and then number three is you're going to give me a piece of technology that's now going to make me go tell a sport coach, hey, stop doing that. So stop do that technology. Those are really the kind of three buckets that I see technology frequently used, frequently um, applied in. But it doesn't really give me a solution. Can you kind of walk us through some of the technology that you've seen come down into the you know different levels of athletics and just kind of I'd love to hear just a commentary both as a as a scientist but also as a coach your thoughts on it yeah there's a there's a lot to un unpack there I think that to the to the first one the about strength levels um I think that if if we look at sort of the the, the uh more recent developments and and what's getting popular in, in, in sports science and, and using different technologies. Um, one of my biggest fears is that we're getting away from one of the most basic principles within strength and conditioning, which is assessment and evaluation. And before all of those things, right along with assessment is planning. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, a, a very important component of athlete monitoring is, is fatigue management. Um, but I, I fear sometimes we get too far away from evaluating program efficacy. Uh, you know, just the, the, the basic idea of, is our program working? Do we know if it's working? And, you know, those, ideally those two things feed into to, to one another, sort of this idea of levels of, of monitoring, like, okay, the, the, if you just have the, the pre-post uh, for sort of a very just general example, um, we have the pre-post athlete didn't get better. Um, even if they did get better, we would want to know what they did either way to, to bring about those, those, those changes. Um, just having the, the pre-post and obviously there, it depends on, you know, what are we measuring? How much does it fluctuate? How sensitive is it? What are we trying to develop? What we, you know, uh, but I think coming up with some basic parameters, especially like if we're talking collegiate sports, strength levels make, make a whole lot of sense to be interested in. Um, we can use, you know, for example, force plate data to assess maximal strength, explosive strength, get some idea of um, uh, training background. You know, okay, athlete is strong, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, if they still get a whole lot stronger in the first semester, let's say, well, that that gives us a good idea about their, their training age, even from, from a starting point of group is weak, group is moderately strong, whatever it may be. Um, but the, the, the very sort of, you know, going back to, you, you mentioned uh, Boyd Epley, some of the, just the, the making 
good planned out uh, training based decisions in terms of what we're, we're, we're going to assess, how we're going to assess it, um, how that can impact things moving forward. Um, I certainly think the day to day is, is an important component of it, but I think one, a, a very important piece of that day to day is the just tracking what you're doing. So you, you know, to, to steal some, some ben, Bill Sands terminology, he, he has a, a paper that was very influential uh, uh, for, for me when I was developing as a student, where it's, um, it's predicting athletic behavior is the title of, it, of the paper. And he talks about how, while we can't with 100% certainty, completely accurately predict exactly what's going to happen, we can, if we make good measurements and are diligent with how we go about things, we can, and uses the term post-dict, what did happen. And, you know, I think that sometimes when, when it comes to athlete monitoring, we lose sight of some of those more, more basic ideas. And then even from, from a research standpoint, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of really detailed training studies. I think they're, they're incredibly valuable. I also understand uh, very well the issues in terms of generalizability. And, and I, don't, I don't think those papers uh, should be viewed as this like, this tells us everything we need to know about training or we should take this one paper and then use it to base off what we do with our athletes. But the idea of science and that, you know, if we have a lot of training studies that have a lot of detail in them, well, then over time, the cumulative knowledge that can be gained from that and, and you know, looking at different studies with, that, are, that are carried out on different, different sports, different athletes, different levels, um, different types of training, whatever that might be. I think those, those things are all very impactful. And um, yeah, just the, the general getting away from, from some of the basics that, you know, if you go back to the first edition of the essentials text, uh, even, even before that, you, you pulled out uh, the, the Stone O'Brien textbook from, from the 80s. Um, you, know, you go through that, those textbooks and there's stuff about assessment and evaluation and planning and things might look a little bit different in terms of how we do them. And hopefully it should just come from a, things are more efficient, better information. Um, uh, we can bring in more things, we can do them quicker, though, that type of stuff. But yeah, I, I think that we shouldn't become uh, to this point of like the, we purchase these various technologies and that, that sort of guides how we do things. We should start with, What's our training process? What's the plan? What are the things we want to know? You know, where are the, the, the questions we want answered? What are the problems we want solved? And, and then kind of create a, a framework that within that, you know, we can get detailed and you can do some things different per sport and different per uh, whatever your, your situation and circumstance might be. But, you know, let's not get away from the basics. And I think that the biggest thing people need to forget is it when we think about programming, this is kind of a new concept. Like if you think about medicine, the first surgeon has died long ago. Like we're still in our infancy as a program and this awakening of, wow, we can actually control epigenetics. Like we can put people in anabolic recovery states or we can be in catabolic states. Sleep makes a big deal. We're learning so much in a field where 1% or one-tenth of a second can be the difference of millions of dollars. And so I think there's this kind of nervous anticipation, this nervous frenetic energy of we got to find the next new thing, but we don't go back to those basics. And I, and I think that, you know, what needs to be said is that 
an athlete has three states. They are a novice, daily day adaptation. You know, they can do a barbell curl. They're going to get better. Uh, they have the intermediate state where it's going to be multi-hour, multi-day. Um, and you look at that body of work together, not just the workout, not just the rep. And specifically at the collegiate level, intermediate programming is where there's a lot of interference because there's a lot of hours outside of your normal care hours that there can be interference, uh, hydration issues <laughs> involved and lack of sleep involved um, that your best laid plan on Monday may not be the best option. And then finally, as you mentioned in USA Weightlifting, you're talking about multi-month programming to create a minute change. And if you don't measure those things, you're guessing. But in athletics, though, like the thing that no one wants to talk about is that if you want to be in the Olympics or the NBA, you better have good parents. Mm -hmm. And the distribution curve is not an exponential or a linear growth. I can't take you from 10 inches to a 40-inch vertical. There, there is a window of adaptation and gain potential. And so I always said, you know, you think of it almost like as a, a Gaussian distribution. So it's not just bimodal. It's not just up and down. There's three dimensions to it. So if you get someone who rolls in and puts out 8,000 watts on the plates, you literally just have to make them not break themselves. You need to get them to show up. But you can't take someone with 2000 watts of the same test and say, you know, magically turn them into transform. And so within these levels, there's relevance. Can you talk about some of the technologies you've seen and then maybe give your you know, kind of opinion on what level it's relevant at and what it should be focused on? And then maybe some of the technology where it's being used either from football to Olympic, Olympic to football, where you're like, ah, I get it. You're keeping up with the Joneses, but maybe there's something better we could do. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of sticking with that theme of keeping with the basics. I mean, I think at, at its core, uh, applied sports science should be about developing athletes and improving their performance. And, and we should never get away from that. Um, and I think that sometimes because there's so many technologies out there and, and you know, there's all the constant social media conversations and that there's, there's a lot of noise right now. And, and so I think that no matter how much noise is out there, we should never lose sight of that. And then uh, with, with the, the, the idea of keeping with the basics first, I think that things like uh, just being diligent and tracking work performing in the weight room, volume load and, and training intensity. Um, I think, you know, with, with a lot of the, the popular wearable devices, whether it's uh, we have, we use, GPS and connects on here um, that we we always have as best we can a script to go along with that. So you know what actually happened at at, at practice, not just these are the, the the workloads or the number of of jumps or uh, you know high speed accelerations, whatever it might be. Um, and then as best as we can, and you you hit on the it's it's, it's much easier said than done. The, the having integrated plan between the, the strength coach and the sport coach or coaches to where we are on the same page with what we're trying to accomplish and where we can have conversations of, you know, I, I think one of the things I've, I've struggled with, and it, it's been working, this comment is much more working for people outside of WVU, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll get, I'll get an email, uh, someone reaching out asking me, you know, here's, here's some data what does it mean or what do I do with it? And that is, you know, I, I, I try not to sound like a, a 80 year old with the, well, we need to hit the pause button and have a conversation of, 
<laughs> but but you know if, if we don't know what the, the the goals are and where we're at in the training plan is there a training plan um you can give me force play data and making heads or tails out of it would totally depend on where where are we at within our macro cycle are we in a more general preparation phase are we in a more taper peak phase it it, it really really depends um and and so you, you mentioned the uh, different different levels of, of, of athlete. Um, I think that it's, I, I kind of alluded to this a minute ago with that example of you have someone that comes in and they're essentially physically impressive, but yet they still continue to kind of take off with their, in terms of how they respond to training. Um, I think that's that's really, really important, especially when you, you, you at times are getting athletes that are really uh, genetically gifted. Um, you know, are they, are they genetically gifted and incredibly well trained? Let's say in the weight room, in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, strength-related adaptations, uh, or they are they more really gifted in terms of they have some great uh, gifted physiology and, and particularly you know one of the things that stood out to me when I first got here compared to uh, being at I was at uh, East Tennessee State and then very briefly College of Charleston and uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, the thing that stands out when you first go in the weight room, at least for me, was coming from where I was coming from, was anthropometrics, right? Like the I'm a big fan of the, the the books, the sports gene, the talent code, and 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 to see like oh the the body types are much more specific to the sport. And uh, ad, admittedly, you go to some other Power Five programs, you'll probably see that even more. Um, and so, you know, through our, our, our assessment and our, our monitoring, um, we can do some goal setting. And for the real gifted ones, I do think you get more into the, the, the more nuance, the more uh, details. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of good research-based examples. I hit on the, the value of like very descriptive, detailed, uh, applied long-term training studies. Whether it's Mujica, uh, Inigo Mujica, whether it's um, the the group out of Norway that's been putting out a lot of good work, um, I, I'm a big fan of those things. And, and you you know you re, you referred to medicine a little bit ago. Uh, case studies are incredibly common and popular in in, in medicine. And and uh, my my wife's actually a, a physician. And you know one of the things with case studies is they actually really like special cases, right? They they, they something that has never been documented or documented well before. So the next person that comes around that has to you know, deal with that. Oh, well, okay. This, this was their diagnostics. This is what they, they provided in terms of care and, 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 and medication. Um, and these are the, res- the outcomes of, of that. And so um, I, I think that to, to, to really spotlight something that's, that's been to me a real uh, positive uh, change in terms of sports sciences. I think that type of research, and some of it might be that there's more journals and journals are taking more papers. But when I was a student, those papers were, there wasn't that many of them. And I think that re- journals and reviewers and editors are, are much more willing and understanding of, of, of the benefits of that type of uh, real world work. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, hopefully as the, as the field of sports science develops, those, you know, researchers slash applied folks that are in roles where they get data on uh, in the real world settings on uh, more developed high level athletes, 
um, that, you know, certainly their, their job comes first and foremost, but for them to be able to occasionally um, share, share some things that, that, that come from, from their world that, that can be helpful for all of us. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing too, is in athletics, unlike medicine, if something works, we don't want to necessarily share that. People say there's no secrets in strength and conditioning. I'm going to tell you right now, there were things that we use that we, you know, if we won, we got new buildings and we got new things and we had teams within our conference. And so there is that kind of paradox where there isn't necessarily a benevolence um, to the practitioner, because if it works, why would I go and share things? I mean, we did this, I, I can... we did this crazy thing, velocity-based training back in the day for our lacrosse team. The coach still talks about it like it's, you know, the newest things in sliced bread. But I mean, using velocity as a measure rather than just absolute weight, that's not a new concept. We had just applied it in a sport that couldn't fathom why you would do it just before everyone else. I, I want to say that uh, when when Doc Stone and Bill Sands were at the Olympic Training Center, uh, Bill, Bill was at ETSU my last two years of, of my time there. Um that they, they signed papers that, that said that they had to sit on data for 10 years. And so when, when, when Doc was sort of several years into ETSU, he started to, he started to publish some of that stuff. And I mean, an another example of that is if, if you go through the, the old uh, Soviet Union uh, texts to where like Matviev's you know, classic periodization text, that was published well over 10 years after it it was collected yeah and i think that people need to know that that there is there's definitely nuggets out there but if you go back to most of the major major breakthroughs or insights in our field it's usually been doing the simple things really really well and at high volume you go to a five-star restaurant you go and you get that dinner they have to plate that same plate over and over and over again and i think there's a little bit of fatigue. You know, it's easier when you have a great athlete. And I think a big mistake coaches make is genetic gifts or someone who's genetically gifted. That's that's not the biological training age. You can have someone who can roll out of bed with a 30-inch vertical jump, do nothing. That doesn't mean that they're going to have the eccentric strength to be able to maintain an offseason, to maintain a preseason. And so you have to be very careful as the strength coach not to reward output measures all the time. What you want to see is someone who's diligent. What you want to see is someone who fills out their card. We would uh, grade our workouts. We stole this from Boyd from back in the day. Zero, one, two, three. Um, zero, you didn't show up, you didn't train. One, you physically were present and you took up oxygen in the room. Um, so you were compliant. Two, you did the things we asked you to do and you were diligent with your card. And three, you actually made someone else around you better. So if we looked at the racks and you were a good teammate, so it was objective measures with a subjective kind of pinnacle. But if you don't fill out your card, you get a zero because you didn't work out. I don't know what you did. I can't articulate back. And so making that culture early and often with the young athlete, I think is paramount because that's what's ultimately going to limit them in the later programming and periodization plans when you can't tell what they did. We, we actually have a, a volleyball team at, at one of the high schools here and the coaching staff does that. Um, I was unbelievably impressed when I saw that. And I, for, I forget exactly how they grade it, but it's it's that basic overview you just went over of like, were they a good teammate? Did they did they do what they were supposed to do in the weight room? Did they keep up with their card? Um, but I, I think that, you know, kind of getting into to the some of the challenges of not just SNC, but uh, coaching and, and, and the collegiate level is, 
uh, you know, the NCAA, NCAA calendar doesn't do us any favors. Um, when you start looking at like, uh, you know, a fall sport, you, you mentioned right up front that injuries really haven't changed much. Uh, you know, what, what's, what's a time that we can predict pretty accurately that there's going to be a big spike in injuries, fall sport, early August, right? These sports that, um, in most cases, the athletes were there either not at all or very, very little over the summer. Um, they get thrown into the fire with, especially the, particularly the young ones. Um, we got a couple of weeks to get ready to, to defend, uh, in, in some respects, what the, the, the coaches might be doing at that time. They have a whole bunch of pressure on them to figure out uh, what, what's their roster going to look like. I have these, these new athletes. I need to figure out things tactically. Um, and then you basically go through all, either an entire fall semester, almost an entire fall semester. Then you hit winter break. Then you have, you know, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, something like that. And then, um, what, one of the things that I, I really don't understand, and I, I, I probably shouldn't become more informed in how things have developed, but I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a bunch of sports when they were in their either fall or spring practice period, when you go from the eight back into 20, um, that, you know, you would at, at just at, like at the end, maybe have an intra squad, uh, competition to where now, uh, volleyball, soccer, there's a lot of exhibitions against other teams, which, I mean, even if, you know, I, I, I know some coaches very much kind of have the mindset of understandably, we're going to train through things and we're going to focus on development. This isn't the season, but at the same time, I mean, when you play other schools, that ramps up things. And, uh, and, and especially, you know, you tend to see teams playing other teams that are closer in proximity. So now there's a familiarity with those teams and, and, and it's sport, it's competitive. People want to win. Um, and so then, you know, then we come out of that and then we hit uh, about a month later, we hit summer. And, and I think that I've, one of the sort of probably, more basic alterations in um, how things like uh, preparedness and overreaching and overtraining are explained in about the last 20 years is if you go way back over overtraining was essentially uh, like overly fatigued and uh, not performing well. And then it's, you know, it's evolved into this better understanding and explanation of functional overreaching, non-functional overreaching. And I think that that non-functional overreaching is a is an all too common thing within collegiate athletics. The and it and it's not from a uh, every you know every couple of weeks just the volume is ramped up through the roof all of a sudden. I think it's that athletes' training just isn't consistent enough. And I, I, I talking about monitoring. I think that one of the most uh, uh, undervalued aspects to the day-to-day -day and the volume load and the training intensity is that, you know, we, we, we can look at volume and intensity both as a absolute metric, and we can also look at it as a relative metric. And one of the great things about the weight room as a strength coach is, and as a weightlifting coach, is that we can prescribe the same program to a, to a group of athletes. And if we're using relative intensities, the, the volume is different for everybody, pretty much the, you know, everything is individualized based on their different strength levels. Um, and so 
day to day, we're usually thinking more about, especially for intensity, relative intensity, and even uh, related relative intensities, the, the, how that can change along with the sets and reps, the alterations in volume load. Can I just stop you right there just for someone who's listening? So you just, again, got a couple key points. I think people need to understand because we, we've had this conversation with customers and other people. Go back the maxes. So everybody knows the poundage chart max. You're now talking about relative intensity. Yep. You're talking about, uh, I'm sure you could probably touch on RPE as well. Um, can you just kind of highlight? Because again, I think for someone who doesn't know, you use them interchangeably and they're not. So if you could just kind Ooh. of break those down for us. Yeah. So, so uh, to, to give an example, uh, I, I know a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, coaches use percent of, of one RM. And I think that, that works very, very well. I actually use, uh, uh, percentage of set rep best. So it's, it's, uh, a relative intensity range, um, based on our estimated for that athletes, the best they could do for that exercise for that set rep scheme. So for example, um, if the most we think someone can do for three sets of five is 200 kilograms and it is a medium day, that's the intensity medium. That means that they're going to do in between 80 and somewhere between 80 to 85% of 200 kilos for their three sets of five. Um, and so, you know, if and I could talk about prescribed relative intensities a, a bit more as well, but, um, to, to kind of move on to the other example. Uh, so if, if we have that prescription, right, that, that idea of you're going to do three sets of five medium, and it's a back squat, let's say, and we have everybody's estimated best for three sets of five, they're all doing different weights. Okay. And it's, it's a really nice way to individualize. And so the, the relative intensity for that day, because everyone has these different, there's different strength levels, the relative intensity is the same, but the absolute intensity for everybody, if their strength levels are all different, is different. And so different absolute intensity, different absolute volume, because like if, if we're talking about three sets of five, 15 target sets for, for everybody. So volume load is uh, total sets, or excuse me, total reps times load. And so if the reps are the same for everybody, load then dictates what the absolute volume load would be. And so I think over time, if we're tracking our day-to-day -day, uh, and keeping, keeping uh, up to date with our workout cards and recording our, our, our loads and our exercises and our sets and reps. So let's say you have someone that, you know, probably nobody does the exact same program every single, carries out the exact same program every single year, nor probably should you. But generally, based on, you know, I, I kind of did an overview of a, of a fall sport, I guess, in terms of different uh, kind of what the calendar looks like, you know, the, the general prep phase, the specific prep phase, the competition phase, those things wouldn't, wouldn't change. And even to some degree, probably the sub phases or, or, or blocks that uh, make up those different phases are going to be pretty similar year in and year out. And then, the, you know, the, and it could change a little bit in terms of where the athlete is in their development and the programming can change a little bit some, but, you know, let's say very over general, the, the annual plan is about the same year one, year two, year three, year four. If, if an athlete is developing the absolute volume and the absolute intensity should be raising, 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 
right? Like back to that three sets of five example, if you have uh, someone that, that right when they, you know, their first semester, they're in a basic strength block in sometime into the middle of fall. Uh, and the, after a couple of weeks of, of doing that block, they, they do a, a very heavy day and they, they squat, uh, you know, 150 kilograms. And then uh, a couple of years later, they're into the 200 kilograms uh, by, you know, four years later, which that, that can happen with good development. The, the, re the relative intensity and the relative volume, those things don't change. But the absolute intensity and the absolute volume does. And I think that that's an example of sort of the, the micro, when I say micro, the, you know, the, the tracking workouts is a day-to-day -day thing. Um, feeding into the, the macro level monitoring, uh, it, 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 I think it paints an important picture. And I think a, a good word to summarize that picture, if things do go that way where the athlete continues to develop strength, um, is resiliency. I mean, we're, that gets into the basic descriptions of like uh, homeostasis and supercompensation and overload and all of that stuff. We, we now have a more resilient athlete that it takes a greater stimulus to just disrupt them. Yeah, and I would just piggyback off that. The problem is, is when your first years and second years come in and have the same, you know, you, you mentioned the stuff, the training density and load, that's not really a good indicator. That means good recruiting, but you're not developing what you have. And it's very easy for a strong, genetically gifted athlete to lift a lot of weight once. Say they come in and they whatever. Do they understand recovery? Do they understand, you know, uh, what they need to do for technique? Because they can just hoist the weight. Like, let's be honest. Because very rarely, in, on, you know, when you think about an injury in the weight room, it's usually reps and reps of chronic you know, maladaptation that, you know, ultimately has an acute failure, but you can go do that. And the other thing that you point out there, which I love that the coaches need to listen to is it's not just a day. It's what did they do that week? What did they do that block? And I have yet to, you know, in my career, see someone that when they go through those junior and senior levels, if done right. And again, that's an asterisk, both to the coach and to the athlete, if done right, it shouldn't even be close. Someone who's been under your guidance and tutelage for four years should have a substantially different training load at a wide range of intensities. But that's an excellent point you bring up about being able to say, hey, is this working? Big general. But is it also working for this individual athlete who's a junior? Look at their peers that have developed. Do we need to address? Is this a person problem? Is it a program problem? But if you don't track it, you can't measure it and manage it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I like to do for for force plate data specifically is based on the team. And so I think that, you know, if, if it's a first time, if we're testing a team for the first time, really all we have to go on is, is two things in, in terms of trying to give some helpful feedback to the, to the staff is what, what's out there in the existing literature. Like, what do we know about strength levels um, for, for athletes in this sport? And we can look at, um, are there any sort of themes in terms of, uh, better athletes in the sport, lesser athletes in the sport. Um, and then we have the actual data that we've, we've just collected. And so with that, we can sort of paint this profile picture, do some, do some goal setting, admittedly to, to some extent, make some assumptions, right? Um, you know, I, I said that thing about look, using it as a way of like across, let's say a semester pre-post, get, getting some better informed guests at their development situation coming in. But then also like if you have, 
if you have this, uh, you know, a, a, a team that is producing over athlete after athlete after athlete is, is, is pulling over 6,000 newtons for, for peak force, it's a safe bet that there's a bunch of them that have some resistance training background. Um, and, and so over time, so one, that's very helpful. That, that gets you an idea of sort of the, the profile situation from a strength standpoint. But then also I think what, what can accumulate from that with, with, uh, with the coach is this is what your team sort of quote unquote looks like, right? Like I, I was with ETSU uh, baseball for, for five years and I'm not, you know, this might not happen every time, but the strength levels of the newcomers were in, was incredibly consistent. I mean, it, it was basically 3,500 PF and the standard deviation was even really small. Um, guys that hadn't, almost none of them had really consistently lifted weights before. And then from there, we came up with uh, some, some goals and, and it wasn't just, we want you to get here. It was a, a, a progression, right? Like by year two, we want everyone to be here by year three, you're here. And then year. so, you know, the general climb I would say was by the end of their first year, they were into the fours um, for peak force. Um, and then we're about 4,500 uh, year two to three. And then our big goal was going into senior year, we want you to be over 5,000. And so, I mean, hopefully someone listening to this might think that kind of sounds like a record board in, you know, in, in a weight room. And, and that's how I think a lot of these performance tests to some degree should be viewed in terms of like, you want, they need to give maximal effort. It needs to be competitive and you can do it. If you do a test where uh, no one's around and it's incredibly quiet versus the weight room setting of, everyone's screaming and yelling and it means something and you know athletes will stick around to, to see their teammate test um that's that's the type of environment and sort of the type of approach of we're really appreciating uh development and you get on something else that i think is worth uh mentioning the you know one, one of the questions i probably get a lot in class is a question on individualization and I think that, you know, I think most would agree that in terms of the, the, like where the athletes at in their development, the sport, the calendar, those types of things are, are to a large degree going to dictate what you would, you would uh, periodize and program for the athlete. Um, but then also having some things like if, if you have an athlete that, uh, back to the baseball example, that going into year two, is the same strength levels as year one. And then you have the other 15 of them that are all much stronger. Well, if you have a program that has some, some differences, but for your newcomers versus your returners, you might need to consider putting that returner that didn't develop at all into the newcomer group. And know that that's okay. Because yep. what we're really saying is biological training age, things that can impact that. Maybe they were a hot mess express freshman year and they didn't really maximize that plan because we talk about blocks and we talk about plans. They're sequential. One is synergistic to the next. However, if block one, you do whatever, you don't do it. You go into block two, you're a percentage less of that effect of block two. And I always tell people, if you're making a cake, 
and you go in and you throw in all the dry stuff and then you turn the oven on and you crank it up and bake it, but don't put in the eggs or whatever, it's nothing wrong with the ingredients. It was just the wrong order in the final product. The coach is going to be like, this is trash. This isn't what I wanted. Conversely, if you took all year off and you alluded to that August timeframe, if you cook the cake at 600, that is not going to cook it twice as fast. You're just going to burn it. And when we see system failure end states of usually ligamentous, usually driven by neurological stuff, usually driven by some sort of load that they couldn't handle, probably change of direction or contact. They just weren't prepared. And so when people would ask me, what's your injury prevention plan? Develop all year. I mean, the NCAA should not, and I'll, I'll say this right to the NCAA's face, the NCAA should not put any limitations on an individual's ability to gain expertise in their training. 100% get it. The mandated, mandatory, I get it. Like, But if an individual athlete says, you know what, I don't want to be at home. I want to take the eight weeks of the summer and get to my school. I think institutions owe it to these kids and the coaches owe it to these kids to give them that access if they want. Because you do run into some of these financial hurdles and even just scheduling and staffing issues. But you're going to go well, roll them out about, there. Think about the, the, the eight and 20 hours. I mean, right. there's there's you know, these, these mission statement papers and position statement papers from, uh, from NATA, from NSCA that talk about, uh, you know, how to avoid uh, catastrophes. We only have an eight and a 20. And, and that, you know, I would assume that that's mostly out of convenience. We need a period where we limit the amount of time and we need a period where they have more time. And then there's nothing in between. And then, like you said, with the, the disruptions in training, you know, I think it, 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 it does make it a little bit probably more important from a sports science standpoint to, uh, you know, there's, there's things we can do with dual force plates. There's, we can look at static versus counter movement. We can, one of the things I, I'm a big fan of is doing some slightly loaded jumps in addition to unloaded and looking at, at, at drop-offs that some of that can, you know, the, uh, the non-contact injuries but yeah, I, I think that athletes being committed year round is uh, a big struggle and it's, it's more of a struggle than I think it should be. And there's certainly some like psychosocial aspects to that that are well beyond my expertise. Um, but I think that no, no athlete monitoring program, and I probably shouldn't say that, I probably should say no amount of sport tech can replace and, and uh, make up for just not solid year-round consistent training. And um, I, I think that sometimes some of the things that go on at the professional sport level um, that makes a whole lot of sense at, in professional sport. And I would also add, I briefly worked with, uh, with the military at uh, Fort Campbell. Um, I'd throw the military in there also where, you know, for pressure sport, you have CBAs and, and you have so much limit, you know, when, when we just had a, a lockout, brief lockout for baseball and, you know, they don't talk about the, the boring stuff that we might be interested in, in terms of the training and, and practice and, and those things. But a lot of it ends up being surveillance because they're limited in that situation to where one of the things I love about NCAA sport is it's, it, it shouldn't be 
near as removed in terms of the athlete monitoring the sport science and the actual coaching, right? Like we have, uh, the athletes have to do the strength conditioning that they're, that they're prescribed. It's not people, you know, athletes going to, to outside entities to, to do a bunch of their training. And so, um, the training part of it should never be sort of separated, I think, from the, from, from the monitoring. And I think sometimes not only, not only is it sort of forgotten or neglected, but sometimes it can lead to the situation where if it's too far separated, it almost de-emphasizes the training or, or maybe better put it, the, the, the sport tech is seen as this like workaround situation, right? Like, Okay, we know they're not gonna. Uh, we know they're not going to do what they're supposed to do over the summer. So let's see how bad it is uh, when they when they get back, or we'll use it as a uh, you know a gauge of they're not becoming more resilient over time because they're not consistently training and adapting. So we need to be even more mindful of uh, fatigue management and sort of the day-to-day, which I think, you know, that, that's an important part of athlete monitoring, but, but also we shouldn't do that while at the same time getting away from the, the training plan. You mentioned athlete monitoring, but as you're saying that I'm thinking about, you know, do you feel like sometimes that the assessment we had pre and post, we had max testing, but now with all this technology, is there a, um, a danger that the monitoring becomes punitive? the monitoring becomes compliance. You didn't train, we're gonna throw you on the GPS, we're gonna throw you on this, and how to not to fall into that trap because I remember being asked, well, do we need to do a conditioning test before the season? Mm-hmm. No, no the, the conditioning test was the last 14 weeks where the person filled out their card and they hit our milestones and markers and let's try to not bury them before the preseason, that would be ideal. And trying to get to shift away from that kind of gotcha mindset. So I, I think, um one of the things that is very helpful to do. So you can make a case for a bunch of different assessments for, for various sports, but one of the things I like to think, one of the ways I like to think through assessment is if you have these different tests, which ones are depending, you know, especially in, let's say not beginners, which ones can change pretty rapidly pretty uh, constantly, which ones are, are much more stable. And so I definitely like with conditioning tests, sometimes I'll see conditioning tests where the, not surprisingly, I well, shouldn't be surprising. They don't, the results don't change all that much, but the coach still wants to do them. Um, and then something like to, to, uh, to speak to the, the uh, ISO poll, you know, you, you have a metric there, peak force, which is a, a, a fantastic gauge of maximal strength. Um, that is what I would say more of a, a program efficacy metric, like especially if they're, they have a decent strength background of even just a year or two. Peak force doesn't just continue to go up and up and up. However, over longer periods of time, it can and, and hopefully does. Um, there's a really good study by Joffe from a couple of years ago in, in very advanced female weightlifters who were incredibly strong. Um, you know, from one test to the next, the peak force doesn't change, um, but over a couple of years, it, it does. And, and so we have a program efficacy metric, but then we have, you know, the more sensitive uh, force time curve metrics, whether, you know, things are related to explosive strength. Um, so rate of force development, force at critical time periods. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, there is, from a logistical standpoint, it does make some sense to plan out things, you know, beginning and end of semester and that, but, but at the same time, you know, you can kind of have a, a scaled situation to your, to your testing. So, um, you know, this is a, a periodic assessment. This is a more frequent assessment, have reasons for why those would be when they are. Um, and, and I also think that just testing all the time for the purpose of testing all the time isn't beneficial. I mean, one, I, I mentioned uh, a little bit ago, the importance of maximal effort on the part of the athletes. In my experience, a good way to uh, have them sandbag the test is to ask them to test all the time. Um, they won't think it's important. They won't uh, give you a good effort. Um, and, and then part of that also is educating the athletes on and informing them of, of the process. You know, I, I think that to get, to get buy-in, um, if you just bring them in, test them, don't really tell them why it's important, why are we doing this, and then bring them back six months later, and then six months later, uh, they're, they're just not going to become they're, they're very unlikely to become invested and it's in, you know, you can get into the more day-to-day -day, uh, sleep psych stuff as well. And I think that holds true also. Um, but there's different reasons to do different assessments. I think it, it, so much of it goes into that, that framework of what, what really are you trying to find out and why are you trying to find it out? I know we've mentioned multiple times when you talk to the athletes, do they understand what they're doing? More importantly, not only, yeah, I'm going to go do the mid-thigh pull, but why do you have to do it? How is this going to help you? Because you bring up a great point of some of, sometimes you talk to an athlete, like, I'm here so I don't get yelled at. I am here because my coach is making me do this. And so that's a really good indicator that no matter what program you run, it's not going to be as good as it can be. Yes, physically showing up in a weight room will create some sort of change over a four-year career. But when we talk about development, like substantial change from baseline, that has to be an intentional effort, especially as you get into the intermediate and advanced levels where the name of the game is recovery. Did they eat? You just did a great hypertrophy block. Did they eat afterwards to remodel and repair? Did they get sleep? Because when they're brand new babies and they walk in and take even the high school level, they're gonna get adaptations just by coordinating the neurons and the muscle fibers in a coordinated movement. So they didn't get bigger, they didn't really get stronger, they got like more coordinated with an output force, but you know, knowing what you're doing when is so important. And, and you keep mentioning the mid-thigh pull, and I, I'm gonna come out and say, speaking as someone who watches this over and over again, could you please, please set the record straight on how to properly set this thing up. Cause if I watch one more time of a tall guy and a short guy using the same height bar and everyone's just gripping and ripping alternate grip with straps, not straps. Like I think there needs to be, the record has to be set straight on if you are going to do this specifically, if you're going to compare people to themselves or to others, you have to standardize it a little bit. And it drives me bananas on an isometric test that you could see even in one session, five different ways that it's done. What is the way that you did it as a program efficacy measure? Um, I would love to address that. One thing with the uh, talking about like kind of getting it outside stressors and, and education of the athletes. I think that that, I hope that goes on. 
um, at, at most places. I, I honestly, I don't know if it does or doesn't. Um, to, to, to applaud a staff that I've had a couple of actually graduates from our high school SNC program with uh, Stephanie Mock at University of Pittsburgh. I've had a number of students that have worked with, worked with her and currently work for her. Um, they have a sort of the, the, first, the first week um, where the athletes are back. They, you know, they have a, they've come with a battery of testing that all of the teams do. And not only do they do that, but they actually have a sort of station base and they, they even, I think this is pretty cool. They'll have two teams that will like as part of their education. So we're going to go over to the force plate and someone's going to take them through the why and the how, and, and what does this all mean? And why does it matter? And then they'll go to another station. And, and um, I think that it's, you know, it's helpful for athletes to see that, you know, yes, every sport is unique, but also yes, if we're talking like anaerobic power-based sports, there's also a whole lot of similarities. And so um, there's reasons to do uh, the same thing for a bunch of different sports and, and to do them well. But uh, to include them in that education process, I think is so helpful, not just for the sake of like, they care about this test now, but also for the overall appreciation of taking care of themselves, the outside stressors, um, you know, sort of the, the very helpful uh, uh, behaviors. Um, but then into the ISO poll. So a, a shameless plug, um, a couple, about two years ago, we, we uh, Doc Stone, myself and some others, um, uh, two, two of the authors, Doc and Harold O'Brien, who would be the other author on that uh, uh, book you showed me when we started, uh, did, did a paper that was called, it was going to botch the, uh, actual name, but it was like 25 years worth of experience with the isometric mid-dipole. And um, yes, I, I see videos all the time um, where there are considerable position issues. And so, uh, you know, a without getting into like ang angles and that type of stuff, probably maybe the most helpful thing is to say it, it really should be a good quality power position for the clean and so it's that that's roughly a, a a quarter squat and you want their torso straight up and down and i will even go so far to say that you can so there, there's ranges right like the the the, the uh, 125 plus five there's ranges but some of it also does have like there's a coaching part to this where you have to look at the position are there, you know, is it, is it, are there hips under the bar enough? Is it up against their thigh? Um, you, you sometimes need to, you can take the same bar height and reposition them some, move their hands out a little bit, uh, that, that type of thing. Um, and then it's, it's incredibly important to keep the bar height. You know, once you have a good bar height, take your time the first time you do it. And then from there, every time that athlete needs to get the same bar height. Uh, you, you mentioned straps. So we use straps and tape. And I know some people think, oh, that's, you know, we go through a whole lot of tape and, and we do. Um, we've actually been experimenting with uh, ratchet straps that, that will go over uh, the lifting straps to, to uh, replace of the tape. Um, we're, not use, we're not there yet to swap it out yet, but we're, I think we're getting there. Um, but so, you know, you're, you're, your hands should be a whole lot weaker than your legs and your hips. 
And, and so even, I don't, I personally don't think even straps is enough. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how much of it is. Some people might be unfamiliar with the position that needs to be hit. And then how many just sort of don't think it matters. I, I think that, um, I could take my guesses that if I, if I see a video, which, which might be the case, um, but probably the thing I'm, I too often see is a power position where they're, the, the athlete has bent over some. And so the, the bar is too, too low on their thigh. Um, their, their hips aren't underneath them. And to give some, to give some background to this, so when, uh, when, when Dr. Stone was at Auburn, they actually started the isometric strength tests with a isometric back squat. And uh, so they had force plates. And in fact, they, they early on, they had custom built plates to where they were so heavy, they couldn't be moved. And they had some really strong people. I mean, Mike Davis was an Olympian um, uh, in, in uh, 84 games, an alternate. Um, they then found that that probably causes a bit too much back stress. And they, that's when they, they switched to the, uh, uh, to the mid bipole, but if you, they, they chose that essentially a quarter squat with a vertical torso in that that was where athletes can produce the highest peak forces. And I would say another part to that is if you have that leaned over pull, you're introducing a whole lot more variability and the role, the chances of the reliability being good for those more, uh, time sensitive metrics is not good. And so it really is important to, to get them to work on the position. And I would also add that I think if you're doing monitoring, you can be somewhat patient of like, I, I certainly admit that, you know, if you, if you take beginners with the ISO poll and you, you pull them at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week, you might see them improve. And that's what we call learning effect. That's that's fine. If you're doing serial measurements, they will learn. They they will they will learn it if you teach it and coach it right. If you do it um, periodically, and um, it is a really nice way to evaluate maximal strength without having to do a one arm back squat or a one arm strength test. Which certainly there's you know there's time and a place to do that, but is way less disruptive. You know, I, I personally wouldn't want to do a, a one arm back squat many, many phases uh, of, of training, let's say if they haven't been lifting heavy, uh, probably not a good time to, to do that. But then also the you just get more information, you get very helpful information related to explosiveness, related to fatigue. Um, and, and so if you don't put them in a good position, you just don't, you just don't get good data that you can uh, use in the appropriate way. And that is a reading from the gospel of strength, because even though it's not moving, angles matter. And it's a mid-thigh pull, not a mid-thigh bend your back, press knee extension, as you mentioned. You look at some of the videos, you're like, that just, that doesn't look right. And, it, one, and again, one of the things I've, I'm sorry, one of the things I've been seeing a, a little bit more too is um, some athletes moving when they test, Yeah. Well, then it wouldn't be isometric, huh? Yeah. And again, this is just one of those things where every tool in the toolbox has a, a purpose and a utility. As a practitioner, 
you are obligated to keep the blade sharp. You're obligated to know when and where, because anything you load to the body, you know, water, oxygen, that, that can kill you. Um, mid-dipole, that can kill you. Back squat can kill you. But I remember people would say to me, I don't do Olympic lifting because Olympic lifting is dangerous. And I said, hmm, with that statement, you are telling me you are not confident in your ability to do Olympic lifting because I'm not going to ask them to clean and jerk three times their body. But if you mean to tell me a hand clean or a power clean at body weight for a collegiate athlete, assuming no medical background or a healthy, you know, ambulatory athlete, that there is no sport benefit translation to that. You're telling me you're not competent. And I think the other problem too, and we kind of, I think we need to touch on this, strength and conditioning has kind of lived in the shadows for quite a while where it's usually the bald guy, it's the guy screaming and yelling, it's, you know, 5'10", typically a male, maybe 185 pounds, um, and it was the football coaches or the sport coaches buddy. Suddenly now there's teams and staffs. So I'd love to get your commentary because now all the things that we've mentioned, there's there's a way to tell whether the plan is working or not, which may not go so well, you know, if it's your mortgage that has to get paid or there's a new staff that comes in and they want to tell, you know, tell you that this wearable saying things aren't going well. How, how would you approach that conversation? And, and I'll, I'll say you have to build a paradigm to integrate this. What would your paradigm look like? So um, I, the. the... If we're talking about right up front, the, the first thing I would want to do would be to essentially have a performance meeting where we really go into some detail about what the, the training plan is. Can, can the training plan be modified? Does it need to be modified at times? Pro probably. Um, but the attempt to get everyone on the same page and to have some degree of understanding of what we're trying to do. Um, and it's interesting. I think that uh, so if you look at like most power five collegiate, uh, athletic departments, we've seen, I mean, we, we had uh, a couple, couple years ago, I was, I was fortunate enough to get Mac Brown and John Ivy on, on campus for a lecture series we did. And, you know, they're, they're talking about when they partnered together in the early late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, to think like, the department chair of kinesiology and the head football coach at Texas. I mean, Mac was the first uh, coach to ever get 2 million, which was a huge deal at the time. Um, it was this very sort of interpersonal one-on-one -on -one relationship where they actually communicate. Um, I, I have a hard time thinking that happens much anymore. And, and, you know, for some good reason, right? Like neither of those people have a whole lot of time to do a whole bunch, but uh, there's, so, you know, you look at these departments and they have the sort of different departments within the department. You have the nutrition and the psych and sport medicine and SNC and sport science. And I think that, so one, the basic idea of that is good, right? Like more expertise in the different areas, more time to concentrate on your expertise to where you're not having to do everything. At the same time, I think there are some challenges in terms of, you know, I, I, I joke sometimes, it, it, I think of, uh, it's like a home gym where, uh, so they say that a home gym is great because you can work out anytime. But there's actually some studies that show home gyms 
are actually, uh, you're, you're less likely to work out in them because oh, you can work out them anytime, right? Like if you, if you actually make the effort to get to the gym, you're a whole lot more likely to work out than versus if you're, my, my home gym is in my basement. So I'm in the living room. I'll, I'll go in 20 minutes and then 20 minutes pass. I'll go another 20 minutes. And so, um, the, the, the importance of the integration of, of those groups and integration is not just having a monthly meeting, right? The integration of really doing planning and being data-driven and, and sharing. And so, you know, everyone agrees, everyone agrees that silos are bad and we should break down silos. But I think in many ways, in an effort to break down silos, maybe some more silos have been created. You know, there's this small department, this small department, this small department. And then the other thing is, so, uh, you know, big data is a, is a, is a hot topic right now. And I, I think that there's a whole lot of tools within sports science that can be incredibly helpful. And I think that's how we should view them, like force plates, uh, dashboards, GPS. That's not necessarily sports science. They're tools to do sports science. And I, and I think that... Um, when, when it comes to something like a dashboard, I very much appreciate the, what can be super helpful in terms of constantly providing information. Uh, I just mentioned the, the, the sometimes silo situation. So these different groups are able to integrate their data in a, in a, in a helpful way. Um, but then at the same time, uh, back to the home gym scenario, it, you know, I, don't, I don't look at it because I can always look at it. And you shouldn't use a dashboard to replace conversation. And, you know, some of the, the, the types of, of dashboards I've seen where it's, it's, it's more just, you know, a, a top three or a competition without context, those, those types of things, you know, I, I think it's easy for coaches to get not just confused, but to sort of be led astray of, uh, you know, well, you got two athletes and they do about the same amount of work and, you know, one person's heart rate is a whole bunch higher and, and they'll be frustrated with the athlete that has a lower heart rate because they didn't do enough. Well, no, they're, they're no, <laughs> yeah. the higher heart rate is less fit. Um, they're working harder, higher number, bigger number. It's, it suddenly becomes a game. It's a scoreboard. Or, or thinking tactically, right? Like, uh, Maybe it has its place in some form or fashion, but very generally, this idea that uh, you want to use a dashboard to uh, make them do more work, like we want to see higher workloads, a lot of that gets away from the basic ideas of like being tactically efficient, right? Like the, 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 the athlete that's always in the right place does less work uh, because they're always in the right place. If you want them to do more work now, they're going to have to expend energy that that would not be helpful for them to expend. Um, and, and so I think a lot of people are still trying to, to figure it out. And, and I think that the smarter way to do it is to hire people first or plan things first and build out a system and then start spending money. Because I think too often the money gets spent and then 
now we're looking for people, you know, we're plugging holes, right? Like, well, we bought this, we spent a whole lot of money and now we don't know what to do with it or how to use it. We need someone to use it. And there are some good examples. I won't mention the schools. Uh, most of them are on the Western side of the country where I've seen like tons of money be spent where literally buildings have been built. And then, then they hire the people. And then the people come in, many of which have some really good sports science experience. And that, you know, they're asking, uh, can I get this or do that? Or why do we have all of these rooms with things that really aren't all that useful? And it's all, oh, well, you know, we wanted to, we, 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 I don't know, we, we, we bought this and now we have it. And now we don't have a budget for you. Um, and, and so I, I would point to, I, I certainly don't have like detailed, intimate knowledge of, of how the UFC is, uh, the Performance Institute has grown and developed, but I do really appreciate that they hired Duncan French and they hired Bo Sandoval, and then they built everything, right? Um, and I've, I've, by far the person I would know the, the, the best that, that worked there for a while was Aaron Kunan, and, and it didn't surprise me when he really talked about how he enjoyed his experience and the things he got to do in a system that was in place because they invested in the people in the process first, first the people and then the people came up with the process and then they started spending the money. And, um, you know, I, I think that the way collegiate athletic departments work in particular, where it's so often you have all these teams, all these teams have a, have a, a certain budget and they're on a certain uh, pecking order in, in, in terms of priority. Some can only use what's in their budget. Some can have a, have a big budget and then ask for more and get more money. Um, but you know, you, you start to, to look at how some of that works, where, why would, if we have five or six sports that use GPS, why would they all be using different systems or even changing systems? Um, I, one of the things I, I hope we really start to get away from is, you know, we're to the point now, I remember when I was kind of early on in, in, in the middle of my PhD at ETSU, we first, it was really when I think we first started to see, you know, 2010, 2011, um, full-time sports scientists hired, particularly at the professional level of sport. And um, so a whole lot of teams now have, and organizations are 10 years into having sports scientists, I mean, having bright people, uh, having a whole lot of money spent on, on various technologies, how, how, many examples could we find to where the data and the strategies have been consistent, you know, um, changing, I'm not saying you should never change. Uh, but I've even actually, since I, since I mentioned Aaron, I'll give him a, a, a shout out here with this. He's now the director of sports science for the Cincinnati Reds. And, um, he actually talked to me some about a couple of things that are keeping the same to where he might not have, if he would have, been on the ground floor and started things, done it that way, but things have been collected well. This, you know, this addresses the areas we want to address, and we're not going to change it because why hit the reset button? And you know, the idea that that science, even applied science, not just publications, uh, builds, I think, is a really, really important concept. And if we constantly are hitting the reset button, hitting the reset button, or you know three, four years into things. I think that one of the things that I might get accused of some is I'm a, I'm a boring sports scientist. 
uh, which whatever. Uh, but you know, start boring and and do boring really really well. And at the very least, even if you don't get away from being too boring, uh, years and years in, you really do have some good data, and hopefully you you you've learned some things. You can always build out. You can always expand, but keep the boring stuff consistent and, and let it, let it build, let it accumulate. Um, you know, the, the, I think the, to, to steal a, a Bill Sands term, I've heard him use this many times. He's, he says that things become a moving target. And I think that's a, a big issue in sports science where we're just always sort of changing the target. Certainly the context of some things can change, but you know, the, the basics of data collection of, consistency and making sure our methods are right. Um, that's still at the foundation at, at the core of it. And, and quite frankly, I think that uh, we, we're, we're a lot of people that weren't trained in that, in that, you know, the, the, the how to collect data. Now they're, it's, they're being, it's being thrust upon them. And, and I, I say that in defense of them, right? Like, I think that a lot of people are putting are, are, are forced things um, when it comes to sports science and then they have a, you know, sadly, they didn't have a bad experience with it or uh, to add to that, an athletic director is now hearing like, oh, well, this sports science thing didn't work. Or we tried this technology. I spent several hundred thousand dollars and I, I don't see any Im improvement in wins or heaven forbid wins and losses went not the, the, the wrong direction. Um, and it, it, you know, if, if I were to get across anything to an athletic director, it would be invest in the people first. And I think that that is uh, a, a really difficult thing for an athletic director, especially and there are one of the more exciting trends is athletic directors um, being hired that really have a sports science background or to some degree like a high performance director background where they can understand coaching and appreciate it, understand strength conditioning and appreciate it, sport science, the same sport medicine, the same. And, um, you know, if it's just a budget with check boxes, that, that doesn't work near as well. And, and we have too many, you know, I, I think athletic directors might not like to look internationally at, at all, maybe, but we have too many good examples of sports science being done really well for a really long time. And this isn't new, right? It's just more that it's new into the world that we're, we're working in. Like it really is kind of new in Power 5 Division One NCAA. Uh, but even, you know, there are certainly some, we've complained about NCAA and accountable hours and restrictions with training and working with a coach. Um, while there's very specific contextual things with NCAA sport, um, it's still sport and it's still athlete development and, and, uh, there's too much commonality to, to, to ignore what's, what's been done well elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many great points on that and I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of as sports science goes from call it, it's a genesis of research. And, and when I think of research, ethical, authentic research, there's a common theme of good. Like you need to make sure that the numbers are valid. I mean. I've seen situations where a coach is like, oh, it's got to be a vertical jump or it's got to be insert test. And magically, you know, the 40-yard dash times look better than all the NFL combine numbers. And 
you're not questioning whether the person's training ability, but that seems kind of odd, you know, being that it's like the golf team that just beat the combine numbers. So we have to like look deeper into this, but I think there's a pressure in athletics. And especially as you mentioned, amateur, I say that with quotes, mm -hmm. athletics, there's a lot of money involved. And at the higher levels of money, the turnover for the strength conditioning coaches is in and around two and a half, three years. So you don't get years. You don't get all this time. And suddenly, you know, you're handed a dumpster fire. It may take three or four years just to right the ship and get it in the correct direction, but then it can easily go down in flames again. You know, if you, like you said, you have the wrong people, you don't follow the methodology. How is science, um, independent of research, independent of athletics, how is science going to adapt to this new evolution where now it's in a market where you have to produce results and knowing again, gain potential is finite. Like gain potential is limited by the recruit that you bring in, gain potential is by the training resources that you have. How do we keep the ethical nature of what science has always been so that, that way we don't lead the future generations down a rabbit hole? Yeah, so, you know, going to the really early on in our discussion where essentially we're talking about auditing your program. Um, I think you also need to, if you want to do that well, um, and you want to, you want to do athlete monitoring well, you need to audit your data. Um, and so I think that a very important skill set of a sports scientist is to be able to do that. I mean, I, I think it's great that we have uh, APIs and dashboards that, you know, put everything very quickly into a cloud-based uh, athlete management system, a data system, but someone needs to check that. And that person needs to not just be familiar with the device, but the, the science behind it and really be able to, 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 to vet it and go through it. Um, I think you're hitting on probably one of the biggest uh, real challenges uh, for a sports scientist right now, which is one, there is really not sort of this agreed upon definition of, of what a sports scientist is. Uh, another shameless plug, we, we did a paper about a year ago now, uh, myself and, and, and Clyde Brewer and Doc, where we, uh, and Ben Gleason, where we uh, tried to sort of couch these different types of, of sports scientists that, that we're seeing, but that regardless of, the, the specifics of, you know, are you more a high performance director? Are you more a strength coach that's trying to integrate applied sports science into your work? Are you a full-time sports scientist? Do you have one team? Do you have five? Are you kind of, are you like myself where you're in academia and you're working with an athletic uh, group? You need to be a problem solver and you need to be an educator. And I think that, that uh, to, the, to the point of the challenge, especially if, um, you're hired and the athletic department is sort of looking at like, uh, you referred to the Boyd Epley example, right? Uh, we've all read that Husker power paper. The, if they get slower, you're fired. <laughs> uh, uh, at the very least, if we co compare sports science to strain and conditioning, um, you know, no one is, no, everybody is not going to agree. But generally, the NSCA and strength coaches sort of were in agreement of what the profession of SNC is. And so, you know, they had a long ways to go in terms of informing athletic departments and informing sport coaches. But there was probably, I would say, more agreement amongst that group with that profession than there is right now within 
sports science. And so if we just look at like the, 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 the wide range of titles and job descriptions and roles and, you know, I, maybe I, I just sleep too much at night, but I, I can't imagine being the, you know, you're the, you're the, you just are hired as the applied sports scientist for X athletic department, which I would find, you know, that's a very exciting uh, uh, opportunity. But, you know, if you have 20 some sports to quote unquote, take care of. Um, and, and by the way, probably when that happens, it's going to be a situation like I alluded to a minute ago, of a bunch of sports already doing things. So now you got to sort of, uh, you know, get a lay of the land. What do we have? What's been done? How has it been done? And, and in a lot of ways, you kind of have to explain to the person that hired you, persons, what you do, why you do it, why it matters. Um, and um, I've, I've talked to some people that, that have experienced this very situation of you essentially, they, you know, they kind of say of, uh, you have to play the long game and the short game. Uh, the long game is you are going to be putting uh, pieces in place, uh, but at the same time, you need to explain sort of the long-term mission, you know, uh, and, and, and hopefully people are willing to listen to, to some of that and particularly willing to listen to the, the connecting of the dots, right? The, the, this is why, uh, this is why I've, I've created this framework and you go over the framework. Um, this is, things that we won't be able to do right away, but I, I would like to get to, this is how I am going to provide uh, uh, some, some quality service right, right from the get-go. Um, and I, I think, especially, I, I, I mentioned the, the, uh, the unfortunate situation of one sports scientist and an entire athletic department take care of. Um, you got to do a whole lot of meeting with people. Um, and not just meeting to, for the sake of familiarity, that, that is an important part of it, but uh, really getting to know people and how they, how they do things um, and trying to explain to them, because you might be in a situation where as the sports scientist, uh, you're the one explaining to, let's say, a sport coach who you are, what you do, um, and, and how you might be able to work together. And I think that probably the biggest challenge if I were to put myself in that uh, hypothetical would be I'm not a person that just runs gadgets, right? Uh, I, I, am, I am trained in the field of applied sports science and I am a problem solver, an educator, getting across those things. Um, and, and there are people that do that very, very well. But I think that uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenge at the moment for a lot of sport coaches to where, you know, a, a really high level sports scientist and an intern that presses buttons are sort of one in the same because they both quote unquote, you know, use the device or, or do the technology. I've, I've heard that term quite a bit, do the technology, um, to, to, to where the, you know, especially with, uh, the, uh, market kind of exploding over the last five plus years of, of the commercially avail available technologies, 
there are some amazing things uh, with, with the user-friendly, efficient, com commercially available devices. I mean, coming from uh, a, a lab where my eight years of force plate experience was customized lab view, you know, engineering software and uh, force plates that were literally truck scales uh, to like the, the first time I saw commercially available force plate and the software that went along with it, I, my, my mind was absolutely blown. It was like about seven or eight years ago now at a NSCA national. Um, and then now we actually, so we use Hawkins now and, and uh, the, you know, the, the, the Bluetooth iPad, the, the readouts right away. I mentioned like motivation. That's such a helpful way to do that to where early on, uh, we, we actually would have to you know, pull the data and, and get it and analyze it um, after the fact. But uh, the, the expertise isn't the, just you have experience using the device. It's, do, you know, if it's force plates, for example, do you understand, do you understand biomechanics? Do you understand the, the, the context of, of, of the training process and how those force plates can be, can, testing can fit into the overall training process? And that's a difficult thing to explain. It, 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 it really, really is. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the best way in terms of, you don't want to, you definitely don't want to talk at people and you don't want to preach. Um, but at the same time, there are probably some things it, it would be very helpful to get across. And I, I think that, that that very specific challenge of we've bought these devices and we need to make use of them is incredibly challenging even. So the, the, worst, the worst scenario, right, would be this place has bought a bunch of equipment that I am not interested in using. Even, even in the case of, wow, these are the things I would have bought. I still think from a process standpoint, I mean, that's certainly better than the first example, um, but from a process standpoint, uh, it, it can, the, the sort of changing the idea of maybe the sort of the vision of like, we're checking off boxes, we're doing this, 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 and that versus this is, the, this, is this question we want to answer. This is this question we want to answer. This is this problem we want solved. This is how we want to be in, informed in, in various ways. This is how we want um, the, the, the information provided to our, our performance staff, to our athletes. And so, you know, I, I think some of the most impactful, so being at ETSU, I got for eight years, I got to see a lot of situations. Um, some of the most impactful uh, for the athletes and, and, the, and the, the teams situations was, the constant feedback and conversation in athlete monitoring situation truly being a, a, a coach education tool to where um, it wasn't just, oh, they're fatigued, let's back off today without context. It, it, it was, you know, coach used to, after, after a bad weekend, let's, right when we get back, and even if it's three in the morning, we're going to run them. Or, uh, you know, no practice plans, so we're going to, practice three, four hours every time we practice. And that can be problematic in of itself, but then also sometimes that will steal weight room time thanks to accountable hours. Um, and so the, that learning process and that integrated way of doing things that isn't, it's not, you know, those examples aren't simply, you know, 
if you want to lose a relationship with a coach real quick, tell them you don't know what you're doing or you're doing things wrong. That, that, that does not work well. Um, but if it's a systematic process driven uh, approach to where over time they can be helped. And, and I think that one of the uh, situations in the U.S. system that is not how it is everywhere is that we basically put the head coach in this very autonomous, in charge of, of everything situation, which I would argue is not incredibly supportive of the head coach. Um, and I think it's interesting that th that really hasn't changed even while I mean, uh, John Ivey mentioned when he was at, at Texas, the athletic department didn't have a single nutritionist. Now, uh, you go there. I mean, I don't know the number of RDs and the, the nutrition program is huge. Um, and so we, we're getting all of, we're getting them more informed people. But then at the same time, that sort of underlying system really hasn't changed. And, I, you know, I, I question I don't think that that's the, the most supportive way uh, for coaches to do things. And I think probably they understandably at times feel like I have to put my foot down on something or I have to have an opinion because I have to have an opinion versus I'm going to let this person that, that has this background, this expertise work with me, not tell me what to do, but work with me to where, you know, it's that, that, that conversation of whatever the topic may be, it's different when the person is that's making that is in charge, admittedly, certainly, is is coming from a I want you to inform me and I want you to help me, versus sometimes the like uh, tell me what you would do and I'll think about, you know, I'll take that and, and do with it what I want. And and so then it's more just like the opinions and the coach has the final say. Um you know, that's something we've, we've, we've battled with S&C much, much longer than sports science. But I think that there's a whole bunch of that with, with S&C that we can take to the, the sports science side of things. Yeah. And I think people forget that any relationship and thinking of each team as like a, as a person is built on a language. And so I always would remind students when you started reading, it was like the dog jumped over the fence. You know, back squats are good. You know, blah, blah, blah. Force is great. Like, speed is this, right? And you start small. And as you build your relationship, if I walk up to a coach, I'm like, yeah, you know, your rate of force development's this, your eccentric loading. They're just like, what's this mumbo jumbo? And as soon as you make someone feel dumb, as soon as you make someone feel threatened, you've already lost an opportunity to build trust. And that's the speed at which a relationship grows. So you're far better off saying, hey, when I show you this on the plates, it means this, start building words, then build sentences. But if you come in and you start doing this, and again, what happens? You say they don't win games. Guess who's getting fired? Not the sports scientist. And so now you have this different duality of sense of urgency. Are you really committed? But I've had really good results with a coach who's like, I don't really care if they lift. Very accomplished coach. He's like, but if my guys come in, I'd like you to work on range of motion because range of motion to me in my whatever 40, 50 years of doing this is super important to me. And the kid comes in and, yep, they're stiff. We work on that. But then you know what? We throw in a little bit of this and we do that. But we don't just go right in because as soon as you start dumping in all that stuff, I think there's an unspoken friction between everybody 
of, well, the sports scientist said this, the athletic trainer said that. Who has the final say? You know, who's Ooh. getting fired? And so it's a really unique and interesting phenomenon to watch in leadership because when done well, it's incredible when you see all the departments work together. Even departments with less resources can do more incredible things than all the shiny toys, like you said. And it's like, I hate him, he hates her, you know, and whatever. Oh, by the way, we are doing this for the kids, right? Like, let's go back to the genesis of, you know, we're doing this to help athletes compete and get better. Um, I just think it'll be really interesting to watch as the the future kind of, you know, seems like it's upon us now. You use that, use that word uh, leadership. And I think that's really important. And it's interesting. Most of the people in these conversations, and I'm raising my hand very much so, don't have a background in that. And, and, and so, you know, ADs, coaches, sports medicine, strength coaches, sports scientists, you're, you're, you know, that, that education, we really don't have. Certainly some people are more just uh, better at it. Uh, but I think, one thing I, that, that comes to mind when you're talking about the, the, the test is that I think, and sometimes I admit myself and, and others do probably get put in a situation where we have to start, the conversation starts at this test, but ideally that isn't where it starts. And um, not only do I just generally think that's not the, the best place to, to start in terms of like a sports science framework, but then also the, the thing you hit on with the uh, you don't want to, it's, it's not about showing them how smart you are to, to a coach. Um, it, it can sometimes, if you have to start with talking about a test that the coach is completely unfamiliar with, I mean, my attempt anyway, when this happens is constantly relating it to the sport, not even talk about like the, the, the ins and outs of the test or, or even from some, I, I tend to not even too much focus on like, the, the training ramifications and that type of stuff more, you know, if it's, if it's soccer, if it's basketball, if it's volleyball, the, the force characteristics and the, the things that come from this, the similarities, the, the, uh, the context of your sport, but that's even still admittedly somewhat forced because ideally that's not where the conversation starts. And, you know, a, a good healthy conversation probably starts at not just, me as a sports scientist talking about my concepts and my framework and sort of blueprint and, and that type of thing, but hearing from the coach, you know, if it's, if it's a games-based sport, what is their tactical approach? What types of athletes do they tend to bring in? Um, things with schedule and travel and, and all, all of those things that, I mean, coaches can talk about that all day, right? They can, um, probably one of the, the, the most surprising things I experienced early on that like, you know, I was definitely still sort of dipping my toes in the water with some of this. And, and I had this idea to do correlations with some of our testing um, to coaches rank, which that's been, that stuff has been published uh, before, but, uh, and, and I asked them, could you do a coaches rank where it, it was essentially if you drafted your team, regardless of position, how would you draft them? And then if you were to rank them based on athleticism, and I, I it might not be the perfect way to explain it to them, but I said, if they were to do, this was a, a, an anaerobic power-based sport, if they were to do the NFL combine, how do you think they would shake out with that? And the 
the, I already was past the point of like having to explain, I will keep this confidential. This is between us. The amount of thought and effort that went into those lists and I, you could see it. Like I started to realize, so he, he thinks about this every day. Hmm. He thinks about his athletes and his roster and his team constantly. Um, and so when you're, when you start to get in those types of conversations where you're starting to try to understand what their practice schedule is like, what their system is like, and that to understand that, you know, like thinking about conversations we've had with uh, the, the head rowing coach here, where he can really in some detail talk about how he goes about the fall and he'll even explain some about how it's a little bit different than what some other coaches do. That adds a whole lot of context to where then I can talk about where the sports science that we're helping with, where it, where it fits in. And if you start, if you start with the test, it can very quickly become about um, about pushing buttons, and 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 I, I I joke sports science should not be buttons and dashboards. It, it, that's just part of maybe part of good sports science science. But you mentioned the small schools doing good stuff, some small places with limited budgets. Um, that's that's very important. I think sometimes it would be helpful for people or places with money <laughs> that money is good. It is certainly helpful. But you don't you don't need money necessarily. It can help, but you don't need it to do good sports science. Yeah, no, I mean, and you bring up the point there, sitting with the coaches and talking about it. The act of taking the time to listen to the coach might be the most powerful thing you can do. The number I'm going to go in and tell this coach what's up. No, you're not. That is not going to go well, coach. You see this? What do you see that? I had a coach, and it's so funny, like. When you're learning language and you don't know, you make the sound of what you want. So, you know, this guy's got that dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Coach, dot, dot is MRSI. Let's take a look. Okay, I have, okay, see? that The dot, dot is higher here than the not dot, dot down there. Well, I want more of that. Okay, well, you recruit that, and I can move it this much, but I can't do the whole thing. But, oh, and so then, then you got coaches quoting MRSI. You got coaches quoting power output. And like, we're making a step in the right direction because we have a shared commonality. And that we care that like they've got families to feed, they've got jobs to hold on to, and they've got finite outcomes, which is a win or a loss, when there's all this contextual stuff that can be shades of gray. And sometimes they just don't want to listen to it. But taking the time to show that you care is one of the most powerful tools that a sports scientist can use to really craft that language and that shared communication that's not only going to go through the staff, but also to the athletes. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of times that, that that huge challenge that I can't even imagine trying to take on of you're the one sports scientist for an entire athletic department. But, you know, even I can't relate to that, but I can relate to as a strength coach. I mentioned I, I was the strength coach for PTSU baseball for five years. Um, the the leap in relationship that happened the first spring where I went to every game and traveled with them and I'm, you know, sharing a room with an assistant coach um, around them all the time on the bus, that, that type of stuff. There is no substitute for that. And certainly that takes a whole lot of time. Um, and I'm not saying that's for, for everybody. And that was, you know, in the, not before I was a dad and married and all that, but uh, if, if, if the conversation always has to be so formal, right. And so formal and so forced, Things are, even if you're talking about stuff you don't care about, if it's a formal conversation, uh, not that all my faculty meetings are uh, uh, super boring, but you think about the, like, the very formal faculty meetings where it's just somewhat kind of 
kind of tense and things go around the room. And um, when you're put in a situation where, you know, the first time you're going to meet this coach is a PowerPoint. That's, that is so, so difficult. And I think that with the, you know, probably the, the most general challenge, big challenge here at WVU and doing sports science that I, I, I see is ETSU is small. WVU is big. And, and so, you know, at ETSU, I'm literally in the same building as the athletic department, the exercise science and the athletic department, same place. I have to pass the coach's office on my way to the weight room. And here, where's a big campus, right? The athletic department, even the athletic department itself is spread out all over the place. And so uh, things becoming more, more formal all the time makes it a whole lot more difficult to where I am, again, I know very, very little about leadership and I should read a whole lot more on it, but just the, 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 the uh, you know, people being guarded versus less guarded, um, the, uh, the formality of the conversations. I, I think that the, 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 the size of the schools uh, make it harder or, or more difficult to, to do some of that. Yeah. But if you're going to make a inroad, you got to start somewhere. And I think that's what I would just kind of leave coaches with is that it's the get a cup of coffee. It's the, you know, when you get time, you know, spend time, so go to a practice, say hi, you know, see those things and start to begin to build from there. Well, listen, I could continue to talk to you for this for four days. Um, but again, um, for people that want more information now until our next podcast, what's the best way to get a hold of you and, you know, be able to contact you? Um, so I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Coach Guyton. Um, and then I have a, a ResearchGate page um, where I, I keep that uh, up to date. And then uh, William.Hornsby at mail.wvu.edu is my email. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, more than happy to, to get back to someone that wants to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And then we'll be in touch soon. Thank you.